If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 10 Corwin, shaking and stunned, sat in Black's bed contemplating the wreck she had made of the cabin. She noted, after a time, that her captor had left her with his pistols, his muskets, and all of his blades. Clearly he was certain she wouldn't try to kill him again, and she wouldn't try to hurt herself either. Was he right in his assessment? The truth was she had no confidence she could kill him, and she had no desire to kill herself, and she had every reason on earth to believe he would make good on his promise to hurt Ben. Devon Black was nothing if not resolute. Her mind went round and round in circles, and eventually she realized she could not think in this chaos. She had control over nothing at all in her world except the few feet in this cabin. It alone she could put to order. She wiped the tears from her face slipped out of bed, and began picking up all the things she had dragged from the cabinets. Part of her hated herself for taking any action which might in any way be perceived as benefiting Lord Black and these seafaring brigands, but not staring at this wretchedness served her as well. It made her feel powerless and small to see everything on the floor. She gathered up the clothes first, folding them and storing them in whatever cabinet she willed without any regard to where they had been before. She re-rolled the bandages and soft flannel pads, and spent a few minutes examining a rolled-up leather case she found. It was filled with sharp blades, pincers, and needles of every shape and size. This must be a surgeon's kit, she reasoned. He would have used this to sew up the wound on her head if it had not sealed of its own accord. She raised a hand then to feel her injury and found nothing but a smooth line of scab and almost no swelling. That, she realized, was a problem that had somehow resolved itself. She picked up the sea charts that had flown about the cabin. Some very large and many seemed very old. She studied each and every one, startled to see the shapes of places she had only read about in books. Constantinople, Italy, France, Persia, and China. She could not believe Black could have sailed so far, but perhaps he had gathered these charts in case some day he should have a need. She found many personal papers among the detritus. Letters to magistrates where he declared himself heir to the Earl of Kettering's title due to his recent demise, trade notes describing a bargain for barrels of rum at some price, a response to his order to rebuild crofter houses on his new estates, more notes from that incredibly naive girl who thanked him for gift after gift after gift. Leafing through Black's private correspondence only served to make her more uncomfortable. She found it far too easy to see this monster's life as some mad mixture of tradesman and landlord. Here she saw no mention of ships sliding under the waves, men swinging from deck to deck with blades in hand, or his capture of women. Before long she gathered up all the papers and dropped them into a bottom drawer, infinitely glad she never had to look at them again. 
That left her with the ship's logs. There were more than a dozen of every shape and size, some thick, some thin, all filled with scrawls and strange hands. She put all these tomes side by side on the table and looked them over, eventually taking up the oldest because it seemed to have the most writing. She settled herself into a chair and began to read. It appeared to be written by an Elijah Riles who captained some kind of merchant ship in 1715. Early on it was little more than dates and readings with arcane mentions of some kind of stock bought and sold. Near the end of the book, passages got longer, and the writing became progressively more erratic. 7th April. A brisk wind from the southeast. The crew at half rations. Forty lashes to first mate for insubordination. Stock holding at 242. 8th April. Light wind from the southeast. Crew at half rations. First mate in brig until next Sunday service. Stock holding at 242 but for one whelp taken ill. Corwin stopped reading. Whelp? That made no sense. Who would transport 242 wolves anywhere? Dogs? Perhaps she was misreading the word. The author of this record had an extremely unsteady hand and invested far too little in ink for her liking. 9th April. A strong trade wind blowing southwest. Crew at half rations. Well, very poorly. Physic administered. Stock remains at 242. 10th April. Sunday service. Restoration of full rations. First mate broken to third. Crudo silent obedient due to management by a firm hand. Welp remains ill. Stock remains at 242. The log then became nothing but dates, crew rations, and stock counts again. She noted whatever stock he was carrying began to fall by every day, sometimes by two and sometimes by nine. After a dozen pages or more she came to a long passage. 11th June. For the good of the ship I shall hang third mate Devon Black as soon as this may be accomplished. He has declared his intention to commandeer this vessel and all its cargo and to murder me in the bargain. He has compelled some of the crew to break into the stores. I am told they have seized weapons and are even now in the hold removing all restraints. Black has proven to be a poor Christian, a miserable officer, a liar, and a thief. I shall put an end to him and to those men who have abandoned dignity, loyalty, and grace to support him. Stock now at 91, 5 lost during the night. Miserable and frightened as she was, Corwin found herself riveted by this long-forgotten skirmish on a long-forgotten ship. Oddly, her first thought ran again to what kind of stock Captain Riles might be talking about and why its number was falling so fast. If he had said calves or horses, it might have made some sense, though he must have had a very big ship to ever hold more than 200 large animals below. But he had said whelps. 242 dogs? And now there were 91? What madness was this? Would any of whatever he held survive to disembark? And if not, what profit could the ship's owner expect? Setting this thought aside, she found herself thinking of Devon Black, ten years past, being mate rather than captain of his own ship. She could quite believe that could never last. She pitied anyone who had the Earl as an underling. The next page was filled with wild writing, long strokes and awkward letters, as if written in a furious panic. 12th June. I have this moment learned the murderous cur, Devon Black, has compelled the entirety of my crew, 41 souls, to mutiny. They even now make preparation to hang me. In my 57 years at sea I have always served God, the Crown, 
and my master's as honor compels me. I have commanded this ship with good Christian discipline and, if I have sinned, it is that I have shown far too much mercy to devils who should have been keel-hauled or whipped to the bone. I have secured my cabin, and I have arms. When they come for me, I vow I will kill as many as I can. I will not be hanged as if I were a common criminal. I may not be judged by such men as this. May God in heaven have mercy on my immortal soul, and may he damn these vile beasts to the very depths of hell. Corwin stared at the last words of a man written in his very own hand. Welps. Because the creatures in his hold were not to his mind human. And then, of their own volition, her eyes found the facing page. There in very bold elegant script she read. 12th June. We have this very day hanged Captain Elijah Riles, a cruel master in a dirty trade. As this is to be a permanent record of this voyage, I will record that this ship, this night, has joined the Brotherhood, and we are now a body of 132 free souls. Chosen by a common ballot, I am Captain Devon Black, Earl of Kettering. Corwin could not take her eyes off the page. 132 free souls was underlined twice, as if it were the most important thing anyone could know about this climactic moment in time. The cabin door came open and she looked up to find Devon Black in the doorway. Behind him came two men carrying food. Some part of her had the wherewithal to wonder if he had elected to keep his hands free lest she decide to try and shoot him again. Black entered the room, looked about, then made short work of collecting the logs. When it came to the one she was reading he held out his hand. She stared at him mute. He took the book, snapped it shut, and glanced at his two young crew members. Neither man was more than seventeen, and one had an exotic dusky skin and dark mysterious eyes. As if by command they laid their meal on the table, neither looking in her direction. They left the room closing the door behind them. Black meanwhile moved to the cabinets to put his logs away, found the first one he opened filled with clothing. He tried another two doors and found their spaces full as well. Eventually he pulled open a drawer in which nothing resided and dropped the volumes in. Then he walked to the cabin door and opened it again. With no sense of urgency he pulled a chair away from the table and slid it in front of the door to ensure it stayed open. Outside Corwin could see the men on deck were going about their duties. It was well after dark and yet it seemed the entire ship's company was wide awake and at work. Black sat down at the table, and began to slice apart the roast chicken. You armed your destruction I see. A hundred and thirty-two free souls? She asked. Then she began to weep. Devon Black stared at the girl in consternation. He hadn't expected her to tidy, hadn't expected her to read, and certainly hadn't expected her to weep. This was madness. He had no idea why she was crying. His intent in leaving the door open had been to convince his crew of good men that he wasn't raping the girl. In this regard the lady's sobs were quite counterproductive. Since he had no idea at all what to do, he did nothing. He watched her cry and waited for her to stop, wondering what he could have done now to hurt her. Well, except murder her ship, almost kill her, and take her captive on what had officially been declared a pirate ship. Beyond that he had done nothing except take her to bed, watch her bathe naked, and force her to let him treat the wounds he had caused. It took far longer than he expected for her to draw a shuddering breath, wipe her eyes, and look up at him. You are a queer one my lady. A hundred and thirty-two free souls. She said again slowly. You will have to tell me what that means. He said, as he carefully picked up his knife and fork and recommenced slicing the chicken in half. 
he moved his part to his plate and left the rest for her. Captain Elijah Riles, she said. What about him? said Black without looking at her though his heart had begun to pound. You led 41 men in a mutiny and freed 91 slaves. There were 132 free souls in your first command. He did look at her then. I do not believe that Captain Devon Black, the Earl of Kettering, is a man who will keep a slave. And if you keep me against my will, we both know that is what I will be. Devon felt his heart sink. My lady I fear you mistake me for an honorable man. I tell you quite honestly I have well earned my bad name, and I have sent many an innocent man to the bottom with nary a qualm in my mind. I very much do hold you accountable for all manner of harm to me, and I have no desire at all to let you go. She leaned forward slowly, moved her chair closer to the table, and slid the plate with the rest of the chicken before her. Tugging off a leg, she watched him. And yet I believe you will set me free. Black lowered his eyes and shook his head slowly. She was arrogant to think she could outsmart him, arrogant to think she could wile him, and even if he had once considered taking his first command as his finest hour, he had lived through many darker since. This was a world that demanded compromise and sacrifice. It was a hard thing to learn and it seemed she had set him to be her master in this lesson. As Corwin ate she saw the crew passing outside stealing glances at her. Some faces looked concerned. Some scowled, some looked angry, and others simply curious. Clearly she was on display, an exotic bird in a not-so-gilded cage, made available for men to gawk. But she wanted to look at them as well. She was a captive creature that watched as it was watched. How very odd was that? She was coming to feel she had arrived via a very dangerous journey to a very strange land, where no one and nothing was what it seemed. She thought of the pistols, the ones now forever lost in deep water. She could still feel the deadly weight of them in her hand. She too had turned out to be full of surprises. She had retrieved those guns, loaded them, fired them. Was that something a lady would ever do? She shook her head in disbelief. I suppose you may borrow my clothes as it suits you my lady. He said. She looked up to find him watching her, elbows on the table, his head propped up on one hand. But you will stop reading every log and letter in my possession. She too sat back. Are you not a pirate my lord? What other thing can you possibly have to hide when you have already admitted that? Is there some crime worse you can be guilty of? Be that as it may, if I find you have disturbed my papers without my permission again, I will quarter you in the hold. The accommodations will be less hospitable. I assure you that overall I am better company than the rats. I do not believe you allow rats on your ship. She said thoughtfully. There are rats on every ship. He said. She looked out the door. With you and that crew aboard, we could eat off the deck. As she said the sarcastic words, she realized they were true. This was a clean ship. She hadn't seen much of it, but every inch she had seen was sanded, polished, coiled and stowed as if this vessel were crewed by men who did nothing but clean all the time. Do not think you can sweet-talk me into releasing you my lady. You are a murderer. You have abducted me. You want to turn me into a slave. And we both know I will not have it. Are those sour enough words to suit you my lord? She rose from the table and hefted herself onto the bed. I just do not happen to credit that you have rats on your boat. Did you not wish to kill me just a few hours ago? He asked her. He saw her slide under the coverings on the bed, saw her turn her face toward him even as she shut her eyes. That was before I knew you were Devon Black, the Earl of Kettering, a man who frees slaves. She said. That was before I knew you.
Black left her sleeping, latching the door from the outside lest she take it into her mind to hurl herself into the sea again. Who knew what the mad girl would do? She was a prisoner whether she knew it or not, and what remained to be seen was whether or not she was his property, a creature like a mare or a goat he could fully command. He was certain so, and he understood that she thought not. He walked up the steps to stand on the deck over her head, then stared at the sea of white sheets that billowed overhead. Be assured I will not free you my lady, he found himself thinking. I do not want to let you go. When Black returned to his cabin in the cold hours well after midnight, he dimmed the lamps and put the dishes outside. After a moment's thought he pulled off his clothes and got into bed, careful to leave the girl undisturbed. He put his back to the window and used a cautious finger to coil a lock of her long dark hair around his finger. She turned over in her sleep to face him. So he studied the wonder of her face. He had enjoyed so many women over the years. Going from a beaten and bedraggled cabin boy to master of his own ship had introduced him to more than a few. Becoming master of his own ship he had seen many more. Africa and Araby. Corsica and the Great White North. What made this woman mean more than any of the others? Then the answer came to him. 133 souls. He said to himself softly. Morning light poured into the cabin waking Corwin before it woke the giant at her side. Black hair, sooty lashes, brown skin, broad features, wide shoulders, and a strong back engraved with the scars of many lashes. Riles had given him forty. Corwin wondered how and where Black had earned more. She used a careful hand to smooth a lock of hair from his eyes. This must be what Honest felt like, she thought. He was no gentleman, she was no lady, and she dared speak her mind and take the consequences. Could this be freedom? She shifted her body closer and moved her lips to touch his. She kissed him very softly, very carefully, leaning back a little to study her work when it was done. Her victim smiled then. Without opening his eyes he raised her hand, put it behind her head and pulled her to him. He kissed her well and deeply, and her hands began working to release her body from its clothes. When their moment was done she lay in the sunshine and watched him dress. May I see your rats? She asked. I hear you keep them in the hold. I have half a dozen mouses. He said. So it may be at the moment that we are just a bit short of rodents. And who is assigned to save all these cats if your boat should happen to sink? She asked sitting up. He stared at her. Well that can be your duty my lady, because this ship isn't going to sink. Corwin sat up, swung her tape and legs out of bed, and slipped to the floor. She rummaged around in a cabinet for clothes. Devon watched her pull them on and cinch them up with an analytical eye. I shall ask if we have any gowns in the hold. He said. Please do not. Perhaps merely the clothes of a smaller man. She said. May I ask, would you wear skirts, if you could my lord? Of course not. He said with a laugh. Because you know they are a cloth prison, a swaddling of idiocy crafted to keep a woman still and pretty while men are free to walk in the world. She said sternly. I may never put on another gown again. She looked toward the door. Now where do you keep your cats?
Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart, voice recording copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton, music by Alexander Shavarev licensed from Pond5.